Hello and welcome to the Mavericks podcast. This is Charlie Gladstone. Thank you very much for joining me for what is episode 22 of my podcast. Can't quite believe it really. We have grown very quickly and it's been great fun. Thank you very, very much. Today's conversation is with Michael Townsend-Williams. By way of introduction, uh, Michael is a man who has dedicated the most recent part of his life to yoga and to breathing. He is the editor of the brilliant book, which I highly recommend, Do Breathe, Calm Your Mind, Find Focus, Get Stuff Done. He also runs an organisation called Stillworks, which, as he explains, essentially tries to make people more productive in the workplace by, at first perhaps counterintuitively, encouraging them to calm down and breathe better and do yoga. He's also developed a Breathe app, which he will talk about. His story is really interesting because it really started out in a difficult way for him, his life. He wasn't necessarily happy in his job. He did some lots of things that he regretted and then he was met with appalling tragedy. And from that, he has developed something really remarkable. I first met Michael at the Do Lectures this year, although he was already booked to talk at our festival, The Good Life Experience. He's a man to whom I warmed instantly. He's just a very open and, of course, very calm, but also incredibly friendly and magnetic, charismatic personality. Interesting enough, in the speakers' tents, which hold probably 300 people at capacity, Michael had really one of the biggest crowds of the weekends, if not the biggest, with people literally standing in their tens, if not hundreds, outside. As he reveals later on, that was partly because our technical kit broke down on him, but we'll come to that. Um, And he really raised his game as a result of that, so there's something interesting in that. But I won't talk anymore because Michael is going to tell the story, I hope under a little bit of guidance from me. So here is Michael Townsend-Williams. So anyone who's read your book will know that there's a, there's a sort of brief introduction um, hmm. as, as to, you know, kind of what went wrong. But I, I, I sort of want to read a bit more about that to sort of learn about the journey. So tell me what happened and how you got to where you are now or what, what catalyzed um, this? Well, I think the surprising thing is that there were a number of catalytic moments um, but not all of them had an immediate effect on me. Right. So I guess that the first one would have been my mother dying slowly of cancer when I was 15. But in a way, it didn't feel like it was having a profound effect at the time outside of being deeply irritating and embarrassing. So that was a catalytic moment, but sort of... Uh, I don't really know uh, the effects that had on me. Second sort of catalytic moment um, was probably in my 20s when I lost a job and I was drinking quite heavily at the time. I think I had a couple of bottles of red wine. And my cousin came round, um, who was a junkie, and suggested I have an injection of some heroin. So being, being the sort of person who never liked to say he had experienced things in life, I said, yeah, why not? So 
after after my fix, uh, he then went down to the kitchen to have some cornflakes, and luckily, I'd run out of milk. Right. And so he came back upstairs, um, and I was lying on the bed, and my face was white and my lips were blue, and I was dead, I guess, or overdosed. And um, inside me at the time, there was this very casual conversation going on about whether I wanted to die or not. I don't know who the other voice was. Was it a part of at me? At this moment, at rather the mo than at that, generally. That, no, at that moment, inside me, there was this voice saying, do you, do you want to die? And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to die. This isn't dying. This feels fine, you know, because <laughs> uh, it did feel fine. Um, and there was this very casual conversation about did I want to die or not? And, you know, was I, you know, was I... Almost like a dream state. Well, it was like that, 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 that typical sort of, you know, tunnelling type thing people talk about with near-death experiences. But it was, very, it was a very relaxed, comfortable conversation. It wasn't, there was no panicking going on. Um, but I realised I didn't want to die. Um, outside of my body, um, obviously my cousin was there frantically giving me a kiss of life and trying to bring me round, which he did manage to do. Um, and then he sort of you know, got me up and walked me around a bit and eventually I fell asleep and got up early because I had an interview the next day. Um, didn't get the job. Um, but. The shocking thing about that, that catalytic, catalytic event was, it, I guess, it, it awakened up in me the possibility that when we die, not all of us dies, whatever that means. But it didn't really change my life. I carried on drinking, I carried on experimenting with drugs, and it didn't have any fundamental shift, or it didn't feel like it, that there was any fundamental shift in my life. Um, so by the time you get to, to, to what I'm talking about in, in the book... Were you there, and then you became a successful advertising guy uh, yeah kind of successful I mean you know it depends what you mean by successful but I worked at you know big agencies like Saatchi's and okay but I mean you were working at the you know at the core of a, of yeah, a big company a successful company yeah yeah I, I, I was relatively successful but I think that I didn't feel successful I was um, still drinking heavily uh, still taking uh, drugs here and there um, not really holding down relationships of any kind. Were the um, drugs and the alcohol essentially kind of, you know, encouraged by the industry at that time? I think they were encouraged by the industry in the way that I, I was a production buyer, so people I was buying stuff from, you know, wanted to entertain me, and if they, if they, they thought that I wanted to be entertained through drugs and alcohol, then that's what they would supply <laughs> yes. me with. Yes. But 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 you know I I, I grew up in, in in a family I remember you know when I was you know from the age of maybe seven eight nine um, fun for me was my parents having lots of people around and them all getting very drunk yeah so I associated yeah. that's that that's that's what I aspire to I mean if you know the, the, being adult is having fun and fun equals alcohol yeah but there's a fine line of course between the fun and the misery. Yeah, but 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 that wasn't uh, uh, clear to me at the time. No, of course not. Obviously no. not. No. So were you an only child? No, one of three. Right. Okay. One of okay. three. One of three. Uh, although I also have two half brothers as well. Were you the youngest? Oldest. Oldest. Okay. So so a huge amount of the burden of your mother dying. 
was on your shoulders? Um, I wouldn't even say burden, but I think that, that when you have a tragedy when you're, say, 15 and you've got younger brothers and sisters, um, they get more attention because you act like you're okay and you don't really want someone yeah. sort of looking after you. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't blame anyone for that, but but there was no one really looking out, out for me. No, that's probably true. And I ended up getting uh, expelled from school because I think the you know they the fact that I didn't turn up on time they didn't like. Um, there was no sense of um, his mother's just died. Maybe we need to have a chat. Um, it was more just you know stiff upper lip, get yeah. on with it, and where's your homework? Yeah. Okay. So so fast forward, and and you're you're still drinking and and taking drugs, and presumably not being terribly healthy or happy with it, and working in advertising, and 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 something happened that essentially was the was the biggest catalyst. Yes. So, so you know. My mother dying didn't really change me. Me dying didn't really change me. But then on the morning of November the 2nd, um, last uh, anniversary last week, about 9.30 in the morning, I got a phone call from Kuala Lumpur. I was sitting in this, uh, my office, uh, I was creative services director at an ad agency. And I got this phone call saying that my 31-year-old brother, Jonathan, had fallen from a 15th floor balcony and died on impact. Was he the youngest of the three? He was the middle child middle. of right. the three, so two years younger than me. And I guess in that moment, um, I had uh, a very strong emotional reaction, like you know, burst out crying, having a bit of a breakdown. Um, but I also felt uh, a rod of iron going up my spine and this sort of superhuman capacity to cope, which I didn't invite in, but it just happened to me. Um, and I also felt very, very clearly, what the fuck am I doing in my life? Um, so suddenly life can be incredibly short um, and uh, I'm working in advertising, selling things that people don't particularly need or want. Um, and so, so I felt very strongly that, 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 that um, I had to change my life. I had no idea in what way or what direction, um, but I felt that I could cope. Um, I then drove home had to phone my father and tell him that his son had died, which is probably the hardest thing yeah. I've ever had to do. Um, and then I flew to Kuala Lumpur, you know, arranged his affairs and brought his body back. And in fact, the first time I spoke publicly was at his funeral. And the, the, the first, first time you'd ever spoken publicly? First, every time I've really spoken, yeah, right. that I can remember. And um, because I was speaking from the heart. In fact, the last time I saw my brother before he died, he was, he was the best man at my wedding in the June, and then he died that November. Um, I think I started the, the um, speech at his funeral with, um, last time I saw him, he was my best man, and, and today I'm his best, best man. And um, I feel very comfortable speaking publicly, honestly and openly about someone and something. And I think up until that moment, I'd thought that people getting up and being public and, uh, and rather, rather writing books or speaking or performing publicly uh, were trying to impress or, or, or were trying to do it for some sort of uh, selfish reason. Um, or self-promotion. Or self-promotion. And so I, I felt put off that, that route because of that. So, so suddenly to be in a situation where I was there really just sharing... Um, my love for someone and sharing um, my grief uh, and um, connecting to people, um, that felt good. 
So that so so what you're saying that's very very that's fascinating. So essentially, what you realised was that you needed to to change yep. at this moment, but also that you could do something that allowed you to express your vulnerability and turn that into some sort of positive thing. Was yeah, that, is that right? right? Is that what you're it, saying? It, yeah, uh, m- maybe. I think I think the, the the decision to change was very very clear. In what, what, you, the decision to change your lifestyle to change my yeah yeah my lifestyle I think would be one way of putting it was very clear in what way wasn't very clear so I can remember reading a number of books about you know the life you were born to lead and finding a life of purpose and 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 desperately trying to find some meaning and and not finding it and really feeling quite uncomfortable about not knowing what I wanted to do so I think I, I listened to Alan Watts's um, uh, one of his videos um, talking about, you know, what would you do if money didn't matter? Um, you know, what would you do if you really followed what you were passionate about? And what I realised that had happened to me, like it happens to a lot of addicts, is that when you're addicted to things, you lose your passions. So, so, so I, I had no connection with my passions. I had no connection with um, what I really wanted to do. And I was very uncomfortable. And that's when I started practicing yoga, and I think where. Wh- so yeah, so okay, so just 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 mm. cut there. I mean, so you you st- you just thought? So, did someone say to you you should maybe think about yoga? Or I did- think I think people have been mentioning yoga to me for about ten years, right? Okay. Uh, before I actually stepped into a <laughs> yoga class, um, and I think it was a combination of things. I was you know suffering from grief, depression, uh, addiction, withdrawal type of stuff. Um, so I was in a very vulnerable, raw place when I first walked into a class. And I was just amazed how some simple movement and breathing and, uh, and awareness could make me feel so mentally and physically better. Um, and what that enabled me to do was that the uncomfortable feeling of not knowing what the fuck I wanted to do with my life, I could stay with long enough that life would start showing me things that I felt naturally drawn to. Okay. Well, so, so that came from yoga, which came after the quite soon after the funeral. Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think within within a couple of weeks of, of of my brother's funeral, I walked into my first yoga class. I'd been sober um, up that point for a couple of years. Oh, I see. Okay. So I'd already okay. given up. I'd already given up. Drinking. So when you were ma- when you got married, you were already well. Actually, sober. when my son was born. So when my when my right. my girlfriend was pregnant, I stopped drinking uh, about three or four months into her pregnancy. Um, you decided by yourself that was what you. were gonna I do. didn't decide by myself. No. Okay. <laughs> I would love. I would love to say okay. I did, but no. I was you given. Would, I was given an ultimatum. An ultimatum. Yes, yeah, so I was yeah, given the okay. ultimatum of, of you know, either you carry on drinking and and go your own way or you you sort yourself out and we have a child together yeah um so so you know when i started yoga i was always already sober um but very raw and vulnerable but it just enabled me i think to 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 stay with the uncomfortable feeling of not knowing what the fuck i was doing yeah long enough that that life started showing me things that maybe i was feeling naturally drawn to um, and now you have um, obviously still works and your app, yeah. Breathe Sync, and you've done the Do Book. Yeah. Um, when did you realise that this might be a career, a, a profession? Because I mean, you obviously it, it's you know I assume that you discovered quite quickly that this was really good for you, and then it became by extension a passion or an interest. Yeah. When did you think, hold on a second, I can get out of advertising and maybe do 
something with this that pays the bills. Well, again, I think that the, the, the surprising thing was it, that didn't come through thought or working things out. It came through a moment. And I was at a, a place called Monkton Wild, which is an alternative community near Lyme Regis. There was a school in the 1970s and 80s that was closed okay. down for being a bit too radical. And the teachers just stayed on and turned it into a community. And <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's an educational trust to this day. And there was a, a sort of alternative family week and there'd be various activities for the kids and, and for the parents. We could do some yoga while the kids were being looked after. And the yoga teacher, Prem, didn't turn up to the second class. So I was there with four other women and a little voice inside my head said, why don't you teach the class? And um, often when we get those little voices, we just you know, squash them down and go, whatever you fucking do, don't open your mouth. But I did open my mouth and um, I walked into the room and as I laid down the yoga mats and I lit a candle and some incense, I suddenly thought, wow, if money didn't matter, if I could do whatever I wanted, this is what I'd do. And as soon as my, and I call that following your heart. I mean, following your heart is a feeling that happens. And as, it's as, instinct, is it? Follow? Is it the same thing? I think it's a feeling. I, for, for me, I, I wouldn't say instinct. I think instinct is something different. For me, following your heart is not something you can you can think your way into. Um, if you're thinking about something, you're not in your heart. Your heart is a feeling. Right. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and for me, there was a feeling of wow, this 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 feels good doing this. Um, and as soon as I had that feeling, um, my rational mind kicked in and said, but you can't possibly go and do this. You've got a mortgage and two young children and uh, you, you can't do it. And when I spoke to my wife afterwards saying that, I've, you know, I think I'm going to become a yoga teacher, she had a very similar voice to my logical, rational voice, a bit slightly Saying, that's fine, Michael, yes, but... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But again, I think when you feel uh, truly pulled by your heart... Uh, it's not up for grabs, it's not up for conversation, it's just something you're going to do. But, you, but you're right, but then you also have to kind of try and figure out a way of making that financially meaningful. And, and that's what well, you yeah, seem to have done. But, but Yes, but I didn't think that way at the time. At, at, at the time, I think the death of my brother gave me this sort of very carefree, I don't give a fuckness, which meant that I could make some very... Um, irresponsible financial calls. It meant that you were you were in some ways free, even though you were tethered to your to your then wife and child, you were also you, you suddenly felt free, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt that life was incredibly short and if I wanted to go and do something, I'd just go and do it and um and, and all the barriers sort of um were dropped. I was also fortunate in the way that I actually I worked at a, a mobile marketing technology startup. Um, before mobile marketing existed. <laughs> so mm. we, knew, we knew what was coming, but we were a little bit early. And when I took that job, I asked them for um, four weeks off to do a, a yoga retreat, which actually was a yoga training course. Um, and when I came back from the training course, we were involved in a management buyout of the business um, that failed. So I didn't actually have to leave a job. The job left me. Right, OK. And I was also lucky in the way that at that time, in you know, 2002, 
Um, I picked up the phone to Halifax and said, um, can I have a mortgage holiday? And they went, yeah, sure, six months. I went, fine. Do you want any more money while we're on the phone? I went, yeah, 25 grand. And they went, sure, fine. Yeah. So I bought myself <laughs> you, that time. time. Yeah. Um, but for probably a good two or three years, I was losing a lot of money. Mm. Um, but I started teaching yoga. And um, so, so when I started teaching, I, ha I had a blind faith that it would all work out. Um, the numbers for a good three years were saying, no, it's not working out. You're losing a lot of money. If you carry on like this, you're going to be destitute. But most but, businesses go through that, yeah, if not for uh, yeah, longer than three years. Yeah, but, but what kept me going w w was a sort of slightly, um, slightly insane belief that it would all be okay. And you, at, no, at no point did you, am I right in thinking you didn't feel, God, this is not working, I better go and do something else. I mean, you just were so confident, were you? Oh, I, yeah, I, I didn't feel confident, I don't think, but I felt it was the right thing for me to do and it felt um, worthwhile. Uh, physically and mentally, I felt great. Um, and I brought, yeah, I brought up my t two children, you know, um, teaching yoga, which... Um, I'm not sure I'd recommend to people. Um, what, why? Because? Well, because I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing to make a living from. But, but at this stage, you were, you were simply teaching yoga classes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so in London, um, I was teaching at um, art galleries and yoga studios and one-to-one -one clients and running workshops and retreats and um, okay so yeah, you, so you were actually doing a, you were you were you were beginning to kind of build the foundations of a business uh, yeah but it, what, the, i wouldn't i wouldn't have thought of it in that in that way at the time it was literally uh, an element of what other things can i do with the skills i've got to earn a bit more money so so yeah there, there was an element of not wanting to go with the flow and i think that one, one thing that does pop up in a, a lot of things that i do is um uh, as soon as something starts moving into the mainstream, I, I, I want to go and, um, and shoot it down rather right. than be part of it. Although yoga, I mean, th this kind, that actually kind of leads rather well into the, the growth of, um, of your Stillworks business. I mean, mm. who could have foreseen that yoga would become such a huge part of life for so many people? And it's kind of, it's inconceivable in 2002, I imagine, to think that everybody knows someone close to them who does yoga just 15 years later. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I could see it coming. I could see it coming uh, in a slightly different way to the way it's panned out, maybe. Um, but it just makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, because we were all beginning to live life at such a, an extraordinary pace, and or, well, or what? Well, well yoga's roots uh, were in you know personal development. Really, there were there, there were you know rulers of India that wanted wanted to know how how to to to, to rule people better and to. And so, so yogis were, were, were very much looking at, at how to live a good life and how to create a society that enables individuals to live a good life. So, so I always knew that that trend would be there somewhere. Um, I think the, the thing that I was slightly disappointed with was that the modern day yoga revival is all about um, the, the, the physicality of yoga rather than the breadth and depth of yoga. Um, to the extent that when we use the word yoga, um, it has a meaning which is not necessarily the meaning that I would uh, apply to it. Right, okay, and what in, in right, just give me a, a brief 
distinction? Well, well, well for, for me, um, there are sort of two fundamental meanings of the word yoga. One is yoga is meaning a, a union of the individual and the divine. Um, but also yoga as being the practice by which you arrive at that awakened or enlightened state. So, so the, the one word has two meanings. It's the goal and also the means. So, so when you're having a conversation with someone about yoga, are they using the word yoga as meaning the goal or are they talking about yoga as, as one of the means? Uh, and, and so it, it, it's, it's quite a complicated word to deconstruct. Okay, okay. but mo most people, I, I imagine, those on the outside of yoga, and, and I'm, I'm on the outside of yoga, think of it as, as just being a, a way of, of making life a little bit better. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I don't, you like, don't necessarily uh, need to know what, what it involves, perhaps, to kind of grasp yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think, I, think that, I think that's true. And I think there's definitely a, um, a, a trend, um, both within individuals, corporations and, and, and countries, towards, you know, what does success look like? And, you know, and, you know famously, uh, the leader of Bhutan in the 70s came up with the happiness gross index. happiness index yeah. as being a measure of, of how to make decisions in government. And now, now you have the UK has their own happiness index and so do Canada and a number of other countries and there's a whole industry around happiness. And if happiness is the goal of, of society or the individual, um, then yoga does provide a lot of guidance on how to make that happen. Yes, the question um, is that I don't think it is the aim of society as run by politicians. I think it's the aim of individuals, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, 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 not no, just no. politicians, by the way, corporations as yeah, well. Yeah, no, no I, th I think you're right. And I think the, 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 the challenge at the moment is people um, are now looking at happiness within organisations as being yes. a, not only a good thing, but a way to improve productivity and the success of a business. Um, Politicians are also looking at happiness as being a good thing because actually if people are happier, you bring down health costs and you improve productivity. So, 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 so it's becoming um, accidentally the goal because it actually satisfies lots of other is criteria too. Is that because we've, we've reached peak, kind of the opposite, as it were? Um, I'm not sure what the opposite is, but do you understand the question? I mean, we, we well, got I think to I a could, point uh, where things were so in well, the opposite direction. Well, I think a common thing um, that I come across um, with my coaching clients is people that have all the material success you could possibly imagine and yet are unhappy. And yeah. that's a very common thing. And I guess we're, we're brought up in a, in a civilization which is all about you know working towards the next thing so when you're at primary school you work well to get into a good school to get good GCSEs to get good A levels to get into a good university to get a good degree to get a good job to be promoted to become a director to become an owner to become whatever yeah and we barely even celebrate those successes when they come because we move on so quickly to the next thing. yeah or so, I do anyway yeah so, 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 so we're constantly sort of um, doing whatever we need to to get to that next thing when the next thing arrives it doesn't really satisfy us when it's on to the next thing and, and, and the ultimate of that is the person who has all the material wealth they possibly could, 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 could wish for, and yet they're unhappy. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, if, if people have been travelling, you'll see people who have very little with big smiles on their faces, and, and that's often when it starts opening up um, uh, the possibility that maybe there's more to life than this. Um, 
So your organisation still works. Yeah. That is principally aimed at corporate clients and trying to kind of change life for individuals and and the and and the culture of companies. Is that right? Yes. I mean, still works really is me bringing together um, my learnings from yoga and mindfulness and meditation with the work that I've done in productivity. So when I'd been teaching yoga for about seven years, I had another little voice enter my head, which was, um, maybe you're not meant to be a yoga teacher. And I didn't want to listen to that little voice because I was very happy being a yoga teacher. But I realised that whenever I was trying to get things moving, actually I was pretty shit at getting anything done. And that was a bit shocking for someone who, you know, in advertising was producing... Was that because you'd become so calm? I don't think it's because I've become so calm. I think it's because my ability to get things done when I worked in advertising was because I had a network of nagging around me. I had clients, I had meetings, I had these structures around me making sure that things happened whether I wanted to do them or not. And when I was suddenly working on my own and I was at a kitchen table with a laptop, I found it really hard to get things moving. So I think I googled how to get things done and up popped the book called Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity by wonderful man David Allen. And what was a surprise to me reading uh, his, his book and, and acting on it was that um, the first line of his book, he, he talked about having a mind like water. And I thought, what's, what's a mind like water doing in a book on productivity and doing? Because like a lot of yoga teachers, I believe that life was about being and not doing. And as I got into this productivity system, getting more organized with um, the ideas in my mind, my list, my email, all of these things, I felt that I had a clarity of mind when I was in meditation that I hadn't had before. And that was interesting to me. I was thinking about how come the biggest improvement in my meditation practice has come from being better organized and not a better meditator. Right, right? interesting, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, so, so what happened was that, that mm-hmm. I was teaching people mindfulness and then they were asking me about the productivity and these two worlds combined. So with some corporate clients, I helped them on productivity, some with mindfulness, some a mixture of the two, um, to, to, to create a culture of well-doing, so where people are actually looking after themselves improving their performance and their productivity. Yeah, so it's so it's it's a real benefit for the company and the individual rather than just the individual yeah, themselves. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes I work with one-on-one with clients, sometimes in groups, sometimes in talks, sometimes courses. Um, but but th- th- and that's that was the thrust behind the book. I mean the, the the book, you know, do breathe, calm your mind, find focus, get stuff done is that mashup of the worlds of being and doing mm. and how mm-hmm. As individuals, as society, I think there's these sort of two tribes. There's like, you know, the the doers who think life's all about what you do. And then there are the beings who say it's all about who you are and how you feel. And then Um, the two don't tend to... And the two don't don't tend to mix. And and we have both of those tribes in our own um, body and mind. You know, we have the part of us saying it's about how I feel, how I am. And another part going, yeah, but you've got to do this stuff. And there's this tension between being and doing. And most people handle that tension by overdoing it every day and then desperately trying to recover in the evenings and then doing the same thing the next day. And so I guess my, my personal work and, and work with clients is around trying to interweave an element of being and doing throughout the day so that you feel that you're being productive but not at the expense of your, your well-being. Jewel, I think m- most of us keep ourselves busy to avoid thinking and feeling 
things that we don't want to think and feel. Right. So in a, in a company, someone will be busy with email. They're not actually getting much done, but they're keeping themselves busy with email. And maybe they're doing that because when they stop, they start feeling uncomfortable about the fact that they don't like their job. They don't like what the company's doing. They're in a bad relationship. They've got uncomfortable feelings that they don't want to address so that they keep themselves occupied. Oh, yes, I find plenty. Keep, yes, keep, yes, keep yes. No, I see busy, that. I right? see that. So, 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 uh, so, I mean, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, productivity has never been as low. I mean, particularly in the UK, our productivity levels are shocking because, we, because we're keeping ourselves busy and occupied. But uh, a lot of um, insight comes at times when you're not being busy, um, you know, whether it's in the shower, in the bath, on the way to walk, work, um, on holiday, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a thing called the unconscious thought theory, which is when you're not thinking or not consciously trying to think, that's when your unconscious mind actually does a lot of the heavy lifting and works things out for you, even though you're not conscious of it. Right, okay. Um, so, so that's it's a, like going for a run and suddenly things become clear and you're not really, or I'm not actually c- conscious where that's come from, they're just... Yeah, or, 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 or there was, there was a, um, a woman recently that I heard speaking who's saying that our conscious mind is like one acre that we keep sort of digging up the earth and sort of you know, trying to work on that one acre of our conscious mind to get what we can from it um, without realising that in fact we've got hundreds of thousands of acres of our unconscious mind, which is actually our powerhouse, that we just don't realise it's there. So how do you tap into the potential of your unconscious mind? Well, you can't do it consciously. Right, so you have to create the space. You have to create, you have to create the space. Um, but it's very counterintuitive. If, if you have someone that's got a long list of things to get done and lots of ideas that you want to move forwards on, the idea of actually doing nothing uh, is an anathema. I find, I mean, I'm, I'm a very amateur meditator, but I do meditate. And, and the most difficult thing I find, which may or may not be relevant to this, mm. in my mind it is, is this notion of trying to think what I've just been thinking about. I mean, I can't even think that most of the time. My brain's moving so quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that... that, that being... So, you know, what are you thinking? Cripes, I haven't got a bloody clue. Yeah, moved on. Or, or, yeah, or, 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 or how are you feeling? I mean, in a, in a, if, if you want to really be honest when someone says, how do you feel? It's like, well, which, which, which part of which second are you talking about? Because yes. actually, you know, yeah. as human beings, we're incredibly complex things, yeah? Um, we have lots of little systems operating at the same time on lots of different levels, and it's complicated. Um, so for me, to be an amateur meditator is, is a good thing. In fact, um, uh, never trust a, an expert meditator. No, okay, no, but I mean, I, I say amateur, I suppose in the fact that I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly good at it and not very engaged with it, but, it, but it's been very life-changing learning how to do it. If nothing else, just to try and slow me down a bit. Yeah, and, and, and also it's about un- underst- understanding uh, uh, yourself, you know, and under- understanding um, parts of you that you maybe ignore. I mean, the very simple analogy in meditation is that we think that we're our thoughts. We think that what we're thinking is who we are. Well, it's only part of who we are. There's, there, there's our consciousness or our awareness. So there's our body. There's our feeling. There's our environment. There's our connections to other people. Uh, and that's all part of who you are. And so just to think you're your thoughts is so deductive and so um, minimalistic. It's, it's not taking into account the full 
full spectrum mindfulness was a term that I heard the other day. The full, or full, full spectrum beingness. Right, okay, yes. One of the things where I think I'm particularly interested, which is one of the sort of um, principal planks of your book, is, um, is this notion of flow. And yeah. you very, you very. I wrote this down because I, I'm terrible with names. But you very um, <laughs> kindly for the reader explain um, what the guy who came up with the concept of um, of it is. And you describe him as being called Michael Click Sent Me High. Chick, right? Chick sent me Chick high. Chick sent me high. Okay. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by flow. And as you know, with the good life experience and things, we're trying to teach people to kind of do you know the value of doing things with their hands. Yes. Um, uh, talk to me about flow a little bit, because it strikes me as something that not enough people know as a concept, but almost everyone understands. Yeah, so so um, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi in the 70s... Okay, well done. <laughs> I probably Thanks haven't for getting pronounced, that right. I probably haven't pronounced <laughs> correctly. Um, he was looking at people um, performing at their best. So whether it's a ballet dancer, a rock climber, a musician, when they're performing at their best how do they feel? And he found there was a lot of communality of experience. Um, people would lose a sense of themselves, they'd lose a sense of time, they'd be immersed in their activity, and they would be performing at their best, at their peak. And he coined the phrase flow for that feeling. Um, since then people would say things like in the zone, Mm. Um, I think you're quite right. Most people have had moments when they're in flow or in the zone. Where you can't hear someone speaking to you because you're so engrossed in a book or making something or Yeah, whatever. and just things seem to flow well. So if you're creating something, you know, you, the, the effort goes out of it and the quality of it um, increases. But you, by definition, have to be really engaged with that for flow to... To be practiced. Yes. So, so, so in the book, I talk about the, the different types of flow because there's this sort of performance flow. There's also a sort of more sort of Eastern thing of going with the flow, which is like being like water and and not being like the rock and 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 adapting and being flexible. So that's a different type of flow. So I think for me, um, yeah, I, I think flow has those two two distinct qualities. One, which is the ability to operate um, at your best. And at the same time, flow represents the ability to adapt to the reality in front of you rather than trying to bend it to your will. And they can sound antagonistic and they can sound contradictory. Um, but if you look at the, the performance flow side, there's a thing called the flow cycle. So to, to, to get into the zone, certain conditions need to be met. You need to have a very, a very, uh, a very clear idea of what you're trying to do. That thing needs to be slightly out of your comfort zone and a little bit of a challenge. You need to have limited distractions. So no interruptions from your phone or your computer or people around you, which is why open plan offices can be so difficult. And the first stage of flow is a feeling of struggle. And what most of us do when we feel that, that feeling of struggle is we go for the biscuit tin or we go for the coffee or we do anything we can because we, we don't want to feel that discomfort. But if we can stay with it and then we can relax into it, that's when we get into flow. And then after flow, and I'd say most people, 20, 25 minutes is all you can manage, you need to recover. And to recover, you need to completely rest, switch your mind off, 
before you have another go. So that's the performance flow. And, and then from the idea of, of going with the flow, um, it's more about realizing that, you know, like in um, some martial arts, where rather than using your, your power to beat your opponent, you use their power against them. The same thing in life, when an obstacle comes your way, um, is seeing the opportunity in it rather than seeing it as an obstacle. And that's really a shift in perspective. I think that probably your talk at The Good Life was one of the two most well attended of the entire weekend. I mean, there mm. was not only was a standing room only, but there were people, a lot of people outside the tent mm. trying to get in. So you're obviously very good at talking, but that also seems to me to prove that you are massively on something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was really interesting talking at The Good Life. Um, because first of all, um, everything that could go wrong went wrong technically. Um, and I always joke about being prepared to talk with any, without anything, in case I need to, but I don't always have to. And so you know, the monitor went, then the speaker went, and the mic went. Oh, and, God, you know, I didn't realise that. You know, but it was fine. Sorry. But, but actually, what happens there, but I suppose it's similar with music or whatever, it throws you then into just having to be yourself and to improvise a bit. Um, and I felt in flow because of that. Um, and it obviously translated to drawing more and more people in. I think it translated because I think people realised that um, I was making it up as I went along. And if someone's doing that and people like it, it's, it's a very magical moment. It's the same thing with a musician. If a, mu a jazz musician goes off on one and it's sort of somehow working but you know that he doesn't really know where he's going it's exciting but it, it also goes back to the humanness that you were talking about you know suddenly understanding at your brother's funeral that you you can expose yourself and you you know your notion of perfect is not necessarily what other people see in you i think it's honesty actually i think i think it's like um that I'm really not, I'm just share, sharing what I'm going through and what I find useful and what I find challenging. Uh, and I'm not sure of any of it, really, because it's complicated. Um, but because I feel I'm being honest about it, um, that's all you can ever be, really. Just to finish up, tell me about um, a little bit or, uh, about the BreatheSync app. Yeah, so, so BreatheSync came about um, while well, I met up with an old school friend of mine, Simon Wegeriff. And Simon uh, is a world leader in heart rate variability monitoring for athletes. And what that means is that with, with your, heart, your heart rate, heart rate is a very crude measurement. And in fact, each beat of your heart is at a, at a different rate. And if you analyze the variance in someone's heart rate, um, you can get an insight into someone's state of resilience or their ability to cope. So with Simon works with elite athletes so that they can work out whether they should be training hard, training light, or having a rest day. By working with their heart rate? By, by understanding the, the vari variance in their heart rate. Okay. Right? So it's like the beat-to-beat -beat variation. It's called HRB. And so when we met, he was sharing this insight into athletic performance. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be great for normal people to have an insight into when you should be pushing it and when you should be taking it easy? Um, and he also shared this breathing technique called coherent breathing, when you breathe in, in sync with your heart. So when you breathe in, your heart rate's going up. And when you breathe out, your heart rate's going down. 
And when he tried this sort of three-minute technique, all of his numbers went up, and he couldn't quite believe this. He was running, doing hours of running and cycling, and three minutes of a breathing technique was having more of an impact on his physiology than all that exercise. And I, coming from a yoga background, where actually breathing is the most advanced yoga practices. When, when I did this training, we were doing nine hours yoga a day. Out of that nine hours yoga a day, six and a half hours was breathing technique. Right, oh, okay. Uh, which again is, is, is not a, a, an unknown side to, to yoga for many people. So I knew in the power of breathing, Simon had this technology insight. So BreatheSync started off as a, as, a, as a hobby between the two of us to make a really great breathing experience. Um, and then I talked about it in 2014 at the Do Lectures and, and we made the app free for a day and got 14,500 downloads. Uh, and then I thought there was a business opportunity. So. Uh, the last couple of years, I've been building the team and the pitch, and we're raising money to build a subscription business around the technology. And the premise really is that by using um, an analysis of your heart rate, we can get you into a better place faster. So um, uh, BreatheSync is available on iPhone at the moment. It's a free app. You pick picks up your heart rate when you put your finger over the camera. It creates a personalized breathing rhythm driven by that heart data to get you into the zone fast. And then it gives you a number at the end of the session, which we call WQ or well-being quotient, which is an indication of how well you're coping. So if the number's high, you're coping well. If it's low, take it easy, have a nap um, and, and slow down. Um, we've got chords by Jason Rebello, who is one of Sting's keyboard players. He's recorded the chords. And, Drove him absolutely mad. Um, uh, <laughs> Why? Well, well, I think I spent five hours recording two chords with the, with, with the world's one of the world's best jazz musicians. I'm sure he's been so, there before. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I'm sure he's been there before. But but limiting him to two chords for five hours, I think, was a bit of torture. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so so breathing. The, the idea is, is is to use it to get millions of people connecting to their breath every day to get them into a more focused, relaxed. Place. So your your idea is to apply it as just massively widely through life and, and not just for athletes or... or yeah, yeah. You know. so, so the idea being, you know, um, there's sort of three main reasons people use it at the moment. One, to check in, so they'll, they'll use it in the morning to check in on their, their WQ, what sort of day should they have. Um, people use it to focus before doing something, about to go into a meeting, about to go and present, so they breathe to get into the zone. Or they'll breathe at the end of a, a busy day to unwind and switch off. Um, so. Yeah, so it's, it's an engaging way of connecting to your breath. Um, and so if we can make it um, fun as well as uh, effective, um, then hopefully... And if you can have a few stats in there. And then, a few stats you know, in there for Everybody people. loves that. Every, everybody like, everyone loves, loves, it. loves a few stats. So also then we could use the WQ thing in a lobbying way because then we could say, what's the average WQ in London today versus New York? Um, we could get cities competing to have um, better well-being scores. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, again, I think we're, we're on to something. We just need, need the cash now to build it. I know the problem. Great, Michael, thank you so very much for doing that. That was absolutely fantastic. That's that. Thank you very much indeed to Michael for that chat. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I do, as I said at the beginning of this um, podcast, really recommend his book, Under the Do, the brilliant Do imprint. Breathe is his book. It's one of the bestsellers. It's a great book. Uh, it's simple, it's easy, and there's just going to be something in there for you. So, thanks again to Michael. Thank you very much, most importantly, to you for listening to us chat. Thanks to my friend, Jim Friend, 
for editing this with such patience and skill. And I will see you soon. Thanks. Bye.